0: Israel Adesanya is brilliant, two new contenders emerged, and Texas did what Texas does. It's Sunday, February 13th, I am E. Spencer Kite, and these are the next day takeaways for UFC 271. Welcome everybody back to the Sunday podcast here on the Keyboard Kamura Newsletter. Sorry it is a little late, it was a busy day here in the Kite household. Had some family over to do a uh, everyone's birthday celebration, and some games, and some just family time because um, my in-laws are out. So recording this a little later, I hope everybody checked out the uh, UFC 271 rewatch. I rewatched the main event earlier today, posted that, the round-by-round, minute-by-minute breakdown, scoring the fight, just to, to give my thoughts. Um, close fight, competitive fight, really entertaining fight. Um, to me, the two scores that we ended up with 49-46 and 48-47, both for the champion Israel Adesanya, Um, were the two scores that I that I would have accepted initially on Saturday night. In re-watching it, I can see the way that Rob Whitaker thought that he won the fight. Um, Mike Beltron, who is a referee primarily, Judge was one of the judges on that fight. He scored the second round for Robert Whitaker. It was the only round he gave Robert Whitaker, um, which made his card kind of a weird outlier. He was the only one to give him that round. The other two judges, Doug Crosby and Jacob Montalvo, uh, gave Whitaker rounds four and five. And so it, it turned into a, an oddly scored fight. But it was a close fight. It was a competitive fight. I had Whitaker in the end on the rewatch, uh, winning four and five. I think these two are are neck and neck and, and parallel with each other in terms of being the 1A and the 1B, as Rob said afterwards. I think that's true. And I think we will see that going forward. But I also think as we get into the the next day takeaways and the things that have come to me kind of as I've slept on it and as I've looked at the fight again and, and thought about the card a little bit more. Israel Adesanya is is really close to as perfect a fighter as I've seen covering this, in, in my time covering this sport. And what I mean is that it's not that he is without flaws. It's not that he, you know, is, it's not that he's the most complete fighter. We've seen, we've seen competitors that have um sort of a, a more fully formed, well-rounded game. Demetrius Johnson comes to mind as somebody that can do literally everything. And we haven't seen Israel in terms of being an offensive wrestler yet, but when I say he's as close to perfect as I've seen, here's what I mean. His understanding and use of range, movement, feints, distance management, and how to manipulate all of those things is better than anyone I've seen. His ability, and we saw it a lot in this fight, to take his, his weakest point, which to me would be his wrestling, his defensive wrestling at that, and it'd still be a thing where he he's not ever really in that much trouble. There were several times that Rob Whitaker went for takedowns and got stuffed. There were a couple times where Rob got him to the ground and right away Izzy pops up and he does all of the right things step by step to get out of those positions without taking any real damage, without being in any real trouble. And then, of course, we know What his striking is like, both in terms of the precision of it and the technique of it, but also kind of, he's a guy to me that understands when to step on the gas and when to lay off the gas and when to stay technical and when to allow himself to get a little more aggressive. If you look at all of his different fights, all of his middleweight fights, they've all kind of been different in different ways. There have all been little shifts throughout them. They haven't looked, they haven't all been the Paulo Costa fight. They haven't all thankfully been the Yoel Romero fight. The two fights with Rob have been different. And when I watch him and every time I watch him, I continue to to see it, it continues to seem harder and harder for me to envision a way that he gets beat in this division. That's not to say that it won't happen, because it eventually happens to everybody. We've seen that with everyone throughout time infinity, right? Um, You always age out. You always end up getting caught. It's just a thing that happens. But the thing that Izzy has working for him right now that is going to continue to be impressive and difficult for anybody trying to unseat him is that he has a, a, a height and reach advantage over everybody and he knows how to use both of them exceptionally well. His movement is better than anyone I can remember. And just that that range and distance management and the way that he's able to keep you. If you go back and watch that fight again, through the first three rounds, there's so many moments where Rob Whitaker is it's it's hesitation to do the things that he knows he needs to do in order to be effective. But because Izzy has all the tools in his toolbox and all the little feints that he throws at you, and you don't know when he's going to do A, B, C, or D, and you have to play that out in your hand, you have to be doing that subconsciously the whole time, it makes you that half second slow. It makes you hesitate for that one little second. And that's all it takes. That's that's all the time he needs to keep you from attacking him. And every time he keeps you from attacking him is a time that either A, it just goes by and nobody's having any success or he can attack you. And we saw it a lot through the first three rounds, especially because Rob gets a little more aggressive and a little, takes a little bit more of a screw it. I have to go approach in the the championship rounds and does a little more of the, I need to be the one that's moving. I need to make him chase me. And Izzy does a very good job even in those rounds of, of still limiting Whitaker's movement and and I think when you take all of that together and and this fight thus far for me is sort of the best complete representation of Izzy and and why he's going to be very very difficult to unseat because Rob fought as as good as he could and I you know I I kind of it's tough right like it's it's got to be a hard thing to fight as well as he did and think you came away victorious and then not get there. And have to accept that right now I am, I am the silver medalist. That is a great thing to be. But everybody would prefer to be the gold medalist. And, and it's a tough spot to be in. We've seen other athletes in that spot. I think he's approached it the right way. He's said all the right things. I think he will do very well going forward. I don't think this is going to be a situation where he, he has to take a couple steps back. I think he will go out there and smash everybody that they put in front of him. And continue to be... The, the silver medalist in this division for a long, long time. And I do think these guys will fight again. I think we'll get to a point where Rob will be undeniable. It may be five, six wins that he has to amass, that he has to accumulate, but I do think he can get there. And, and we will probably at some point see a third fight between these guys. But I still don't know if it's ever going to go different. And that's the really interesting, really scary thing for every other middleweight and the really impressive thing about Israel Adesanya amongst many, many impressive things about the last style vendor. So now we get to what comes next for Izzy, right? We have to think both. And for me, I, I try to think in the immediate and in the down the road. And so in the immediate, it's it's pretty obvious that it will be Jared Cannonier who goes out on, on Saturday and gets an impressive second round stoppage win over Derek Brunson, rallying after being knocked down and and being on the wrong end of things in the first, he comes out in the second and reverses course, shifts all the momentum and gets the stoppage in, in very violent fashion. Um, I also think that in terms of the immediate, there's going to be some goal setting for Israel. He's talked a little bit about nobody's ever defended their title four times in a calendar year. That's on the table right now. He talked about June as being a return date. And so if he can do... February, June, September, December. Those are kind of tight turnarounds. It's a little hard, but he didn't take a ton of damage in this fight on Saturday. He's not a guy that generally outside of really the Calvin Gastelum fight has taken a lot of damage, and so the potential is there. The part that's interesting and this is kind of blending the two things that I have two things that I have listed here to talk about is that I don't know if he's going to have enough contenders to fight four times a year. Because right now, obviously, as we said, Kananir is next. Sean Strickland is trending towards being in line. He probably needs one more win, given that Kananir gets this next fight. But I mean, Israel's beaten most of the people that would be in line. and, And unless Strickland can keep moving forward, Sean becomes another one for for later in the year for that second half. But to get to four would be hard because you look at the division and I don't know necessarily who else is there. As the rankings stand right now, this is before they update. They will update probably on Tuesday. Um, It goes Whitaker, Marvin Vittori, Jared Cannoneer, Derek Brunson, Paolo Costa, Sean Strickland, Jack Hermanson, Darren Till, Uriah Hall, Kelvin Gastelum, Brad Tavares- Nassardine Imavov, Andre Muniz, Kevin Holland, and Chris Weidman. Israel is beaten. Whitaker, Vittori, Brunson, Costa, and Calvin Gaslam already. So that's four members, five members, sorry, of the top ten. is going to get his shot, so that makes six. Strickland's in that mix. Jack Hermanson hasn't been able to clear the hurdle, so he hasn't gotten there yet. Darren Till, same boat. Uriah Hall, same boat. Brad Tavares isn't in that mix. Nasruddin Imovov and Andre Muniz are the two guys that if they can keep moving forward and they both have matchups that have the potential to advance them on the calendar coming up, so if they can continue to win fights, one of them could position themselves to be that sort of end-of-year, early-next-year competitor. But beyond that, man, and, and I, gotta, I have to give it up to my guy Sean Sheehan, this is where you see and and why he often says that middleweight is just such a wasteland because part of it is that Izzy has already been so dominant and he beat some guys on the way up that are now in the mix again. And he's already started doubling up. It's just one of those divisions where the absolute best have all, or Robert Whitaker has beaten a bunch of guys that haven't been able to clear that hurdle. And, the next group of guys haven't been able to get there, and there's just not as many young emerging talents climbing the ranks and beating these tenured veterans as there are in some of these other divisions where we've seen some kind of changeover or a changing of the guard in terms of contenders, or new contenders just emerge and and they're fresh in terms of the matchups. Middleweight doesn't have that right now, and outside of this year, and look, things can absolutely change. Results are going to happen that that we don't expect, that throw us curveballs. Somebody could come along and, and pull a Kevin Holland from two years ago and rattle off three, four, five wins that get them in the mix. But as of right now, it's, it's kind of difficult to forecast, and, and middleweight could get ugly for the next couple of years because, as I said, I don't see anybody necessarily unseating Israel Adesanya and, and being that person that gives Izzy that massive test that he needs. But time will tell. Shift now to the co-main event, and I got to say, man, Bam Bam is just built different. That was the the subhead on 10 Things, the main the main card edition on Saturday. Got to give it up to Tai Tuivasa, who navigates some tricky spots against Derek Brunt, against Derek Lewis, to come out and secure a second-round stoppage win, answering all the questions that we had about him, right? This, to me, going into this fight, was all about figuring out whether Tai Tuivasa is in that championship class because Derek Lewis, we know he's fought for a title twice. He's been that guy that you have to beat to get in there. He's only lost to championship tier talent, and now Tai Tuivasa has gone out and beating him, beaten him, to put himself in there. The other piece of the takeaway for me with this fight is that we have this propensity to react to results too quickly and to want to jump to kind of firm conclusions when we should probably be taking a more patient, more measured approach. I understand that that's no fun. That doesn't make necessarily for great podcasting or great headlines or even great editorial pieces, but it really is the right approach. When Tai Tuivasa showed up on the scene and won three fights in eight months, to climb into the top 10, top 15, wherever it was, people were ready to crown him as a contender. He then lost three straight fights, and people absolutely abandoned ship, and Tai Tuivasa was just a guy, wasn't going to be anything more than kind of yet another one of those kind of workmanlike heavyweights. And now that he's come out and done this, and now that he's had a little more time, and he's changed some stuff up, we see that he's a contender again, or he's actually proven that he can be a contender rather than being a projected contender that he was earlier in his career. And it feels like we're just sort of always in this rush to declare how far people are going to go based on three, four matchups, two, three matchups and projecting them at their absolute highest, but then also really quick to look at them at their absolute lowest and say, this is where they sit. When the reality is so much changes over the span of three or four years, especially with young fighters, especially with people that are still figuring everything out and and getting acclimated to both this sport, competing at this level, figuring out kind of their own style and who they are as a fighter and how to best deploy all of their weapons and all of those different things that Taitui Vasa has done over the course of this five fight winning streak brought on by that three-fight losing streak. He needed to go through each of these three now phases of his career in the UFC to get to where he is today, to where he's one fight away from challenging for the title, to where he should be facing a Cyril Gane or a Stipe Miocic or you know somebody in that group to figure out what comes next. Because he looked great on Saturday, and he just might be this guy that, that is gonna he may end up being, and I think I said this during the week leading up to the fight, he may actually end up being all the things that we wanted Derek Lewis to be, where he has the uncanny athleticism for a guy his size. He has the freakish power. He also, as he showed on Saturday, has a clear ability to take some big shots in a division where he's gonna have to take some big shots in order to succeed. And if he continues to do what he's been doing and make these gains and progress the way he's going, he's going to go from just being a fun-loving fan favorite that everybody is behind to a guy that's absolutely in the thick of the chase in the championship hunt, which I don't think anybody would have said two years ago when he was coming off those losses and he was starting to rebuild. And so it probably makes a lot of sense going forward, if we just take a little bit more time and give people a little more leeway rather than instantly reacting and projecting the best or worst of them based on their latest result. To that same end, the flip side of that coin is that we need to ease up with these prospects and our projections for them. Saturday night, we had both Nasrat Hakparast and Alexander Hernandez suffer losses, not look great against veteran guys, continue to be unable to clear that step in their progression. And it feels like both guys were thrown into that. Oh my God, they could be next. I remember with Alex Hernandez, obviously he goes out, he gets the, the win over Benil Dariush as the debut and it's a terrific win. He looked fantastic. And then he out wrestles Olivier Aubame-Mercier in his second fight. And people think, this is the guy. I remember going into that fight with Donald Cerrone. It was, he is, Alex Hernandez is going to blow through Donald Cerrone, who is shopworn and it's Cowboy and whatever. And then he's going to be in the top 10. And this is the next guy. And he didn't get through Cowboy. And we should have waited on the, this is the next guy part. Nasrat Hackbarast, same kind of thing. We talked about it on the Severe Preview on Thursday. You can find that going back through some of the stuff I've posted or on the My Week in Words newsletter that I put out on review. Find it on my Twitter page. Um, we kind of got ahead of ourselves with him. He shows all the elements, and, and understandably, with both of these guys, you see all the elements. You can see all the pieces and how they would fit, but we don't give them time to actually fit. And we don't give them time. It's like we're we're projecting based on the hypothesis instead of actually running the experiments. And we need to let these fighters and these athletes go through the actual experiment. We need to wait to see the evidence that supports our projection. I'm all for talking about ceilings of people. And at the absolute best, if everything lines up, this is where they could be. But development isn't a lineal thing. Everybody progresses at different paces. And some guys just plateau and peak and kind of top out below where you want them to be or where you think they can be. And other people exceed expectations all the time. And so it feels like, again, kind of with the reacting to results thing, we're in such a hurry to crown the next person to watch for and promote and and push these young athletes that haven't been tested and haven't proven that they can get over those steps, that we need to dial it back. We need to make it a little... Because they're going to put the pressure on themselves anyways. And every time we sit there and talk about them as these, you know, future champions or future contenders, before they've shown that, it sets this weird expectation with fans and it sets this weird narrative with fans where they're not given time and every time they don't clear that hurdle it becomes a reason to dismiss them when in actuality it's just part of the steps right going back to Tai Tuivasa we projected him so far after the three the three wins where the third win was a decision over Andrei Orlovsky part of one of Andrei's losing streaks and it instantly became, oh, this guy can be a contender. Then he loses to Junior, Blagoy Ivanov, and Sergei Spivak. And it's, well, this guy isn't going to be anything. And then he starts building again. And everybody was so far out on him that we've been slow to pick up and get to where we are now, where people are rightfully understanding that he should be a contender. Coming off that fight with Augusto Sakai, it set this fight up as what it was. This is the test for Ty. This is the measuring stick. We know now he is a kind of top ten guy in this division. Let's see if he can be a top five. And if he if he pa- he passed this test on Saturday, but if he didn't, you reset it. You try it again. Can he be top seven? And we got to give athletes time to do that. We need to see the actual results. That's that's why these fights happen. That's why they get made. The way they get made is to put athletes out there in front of these experienced veterans in front of these other emerging contenders where we have to get the results before we decide where these people fall in the rankings or their projections can be. Because if we're too quick or we're too late, then then fans aren't getting the analysis and the information that we as, as the media and, and we as the people that watch this stuff, study this stuff, talk about this stuff, should really be passing along. That's how people get lost in the shuffle. That's how people seem to come out of nowhere. And so we just need to kind of find a better balance between hustling prospects and abandoning ship when people struggle. Because the reality is most of this lives in the in-between of those two things. And the only way we ever find out is to actually see what happens when they get into the cage and they test themselves at these different levels against these different people. To that end, Saturday showed us that we have two more tenured veterans in the lightweight division that are nightmare matchups for just about anybody. They are perfect litmus tests for guys like Alexander Hernandez and Nasrat Hakperast. That would be Hanato Moicano and Bobby Green, who went out and did their veteran things. Moicano actually was really cool to see. kind of dialed back his intensity when he knew that he could out-technique Alexander Hernandez on the feet and he could use... Alex Hernandez is kind of over-aggressive rushing style to his advantage. Picked him apart, stung him a couple times, gets him on the ground, chokes him out, game over. Bobby Green did what Bobby Green does, or has done, especially of late. Goes out, sticks the jab, lots of speed, lots of volume, lots of output. Fights a very veteran fight. Sweeps the scorecards. Best two fights. In the UFC, in my opinion, the Bobby Green has put together the Al Ayaq Quinta fight, and this fight on Saturday night. These are two guys, man, and I I know I talk about this all the time. I know I am I'm one of those people that's always beating this drum, but we gotta appreciate these guys more. We've got to appreciate what it means for Rafael Faziv to beat Hanato Maikano. We've got to appreciate what it means for Bobby Green to have 40-some-odd fights and be hanging around and and sticking around kind of just outside the top 15 for this long and still be getting better and still be improving and taking it to these guys that are, you know, projected to beat him or expected to beat him or look like they might be able to beat him. And he goes out there and, and keeps turning people away, even in those fights that he lost last year where he lost to Tiago Moises is one of them. And I can't off the top of my head remember the other one. He's super competitive. He's making these younger athletes that are trying to move ahead work. And we need guys like that. We need Bobby Green. We need Hanato Moikano. We need them in every division because they're, they're sort of the bar that we understand what it means to clear it. And we know what it means to get past that guy or not get past that guy. And just because the results aren't always there, just because they're not necessarily top 15 fighters, doesn't mean that they're dismissible. Doesn't mean that they're people we shouldn't pay attention to, because they both showed on Saturday night that we absolutely should be paying attention to them every time they step in the cage, regardless of not having a number next to their name, or fighting on the prelims, or the early prelims where Moicano and and Alex Hernandez were supposed to fight or initially scheduled to fight until Alex Hernandez threw his tantrum and got choked out on pay-per-view, which is just, you know, the fight guard gods and karma kind of giving them a little bit of, be careful what you wish for. But these are athletes, and, and I've talked about it a lot here on the newsletter throughout my career. We need to appreciate these veterans. They are the people that help me. Ma- they are the unsung heroes of all of these divisions. They're the ones that make these ecosystems work and continue to thrive. And we got to give it up for them. We got to give them their love. We got to give them their flowers because when they're gone, we start doing the like, man, I wish we had more of the Hanato Moikanos and the Bobby Greens. Appreciate them while they're here. Sing their praises while they're here. Understand the value that they bring to these weight classes because they are so vitally important to everything that happens in their division and in this sport. So now we get to Texas doing Texas things. And I need to say, end of the day, they got the result right in the main event. I thought going into the decision that it could be all over the place. Um, thankfully, it wasn't. Unanimous decision. Israel Adasonia wins as he should have. Earlier in the night, however, we had a couple decisions, both from a couple verdicts, both from the same judge. Um, that a lot of people questioned. I was a little bit more okay with the Jared Vandera 29-28 as sort of the dissenting voice in the split decision with Andre Arlovsky. Um, Clearly for me, Vandera wins the third, Arlovsky wins the first two. I haven't watched it back, I'll be honest. I probably will at some point, but it's not like even just thinking about it now, you know, 24, not quite 24 hours later, It's not like Arlovsky ran away with those rounds, those first two rounds in that that fight. I thought he landed the better strikes. I thought he was doing more. I thought they were the more impactful blows. And that, to me, is why he won the first two and Vandera gets the third for the 29-28 Arlovsky on my card and on the two majority cards that get him the win. The one that was wild, the one that... And honestly, and shout out again to my guy Sean Sheehan, who said it correctly... It's not just that the one one judge scored the Casey O'Neill-Roxanne Modafari fight for Roxanne Modafari. It's the fact that all three of those cards, to me, I don't understand them. I don't see how you get to even 29-28 Casey O'Neill. To me, that is 30-27 pretty clearly across the board for Casey O'Neill, who turns in a great performance. And look, she said all the right... I think she said all the right things afterwards in terms of, you want to boo me, fine. Everybody loves Roxy. I know I got to be the bad guy. You want me to be the villain, I'll be the villain. Cool. Great lane for Casey O'Neill to be in. She continues to move forward in the flyweight division. But to me, as... So, the card for Roxanne Mataferi, God love her. She is one of my favorite people. I wrote about it throughout the week and again on Saturday she, she absolutely did not win that fight. I know that her management tweeted out, Roxanne won rounds two and three. I love you, Danny. No, she didn't. I didn't need and, and you don't need to look at the stats to understand that. I understood that watching it live at home here in Abbotsford. Looking at the stats, it, it makes it more clear. It makes it almost indefensible that you give those rounds Two of those rounds to Roxanne Matafari. Um, Striking stats, just in terms of significant strikes through the three rounds. First round, 72 to 44, Casey O'Neal. Second round, 86 to 35 for Casey O'Neal. Third round, 71 to 44 for Casey O'Neal. For a total of 229 to 120, O'Neal landing at just shy of 60%. Roxanne landing at 33%. There are two takedowns in there for Roxy, but not much control time at all, a total of just over a minute. To me, it's indefensible that you score that fight for Roxanne Matafari. That judge should never judge another fight, period, again, yet alone another UFC fight. Um, but the other two cards to me as well are are also cards that that just don't make sense. Like I I haven't even looked to see what round the two judges, and I'm gonna do it now, which is why you will now hear some typing what round that they gave or what rounds they gave Roxanne Mataferi, because I just, in watching that fight, it didn't make sense. And everybody says, and everybody can say, oh, well, the right person won. And absolutely, at the end of the day, the result was correct. But we need to aspire to greater than just, well, the result was correct. Because Casey O'Neill shouldn't have a split decision on on her resume right now. It shouldn't come back as she what looks at and what people will look at and say, oh, well, she barely edged out Roxanne Matafari when Roxanne was 39 and and walking out the door. And that's not what happened. That's not what we saw. And all three judges gave Roxanne Matafari the third round. And I just don't understand it. And it's not because I have access to these numbers. It's not because I can pull up ufcstats.com and see the punch stat numbers. I saw it watching it live and I understand that judging is difficult. I've gone through the courses. I've scored fights, sitting cage-side before. It is difficult. Your views are obstructed. You don't have access to all the camera angles we have on television. But this is just plain wrong. All three of those cards have errors to me and discrepancies to me that, that I need explanations of. And the worst part is, is that we've come to expect this whenever the UFC goes to Texas. Because this is just Texas's reputation. The other part of it, to me, that again, I, I I need some, I need some explanation. I need to understand this. Last night they had multiple referees also serving as judges, and so it's probably like all of those officials understand how to do the job. And it's probably a money thing. We've already got Kerry Hatley here and Mike Beltran here and Jacob Montalvo here. And they do double duty on these regional shows and these, you know, different organizations. So let's just have them do double duty here. I get it. Please stop doing it, Texas. Because there are proven, skilled, regular traveling judges that can come in and do do a better job than your local guys, than these double-duty officials. And again, I get that it's hard. I get that it's difficult. But Mike Beltran should be able to focus on the three or four fights that he has to officiate through the night. And Jacob Montalvo should be able to worry about the three or four fights that he has to referee throughout the fight. Same with Kerry Hatley. Rather than coming out of the cage and now he's got to sit in a judge's chair and judge this next fight, but he's got to referee the next one And there's too much going on. Let everybody do one job. Bring in competent, experienced, traveling judges. I get allowing some of your local judges to work some of these undercard fights. It never works out. There's always an instance where one of these relatively inexperienced officials screws something up. And it is screwing something up. This None of these cards were a case of, you know, just MMA Twitter disagreeing and seeing things differently. This was universal that no one understood scoring that fight for Roxanne Matafari. And my guy, Aaron Braunstetter from TSN, said, oh, my God, the broadcast just threw that that official under the bus. And I responded that, to be fair, he deserved to be thrown under the bus because that, to me, is probably the it's it's one of the worst scorecards I can remember since Diego Sanchez beat Ross Pearson in Albuquerque New Mexico several years ago it's indefensible we need to get to a point where we are past indefensible scorecards and we need to get to a point where Texas just isn't so reliable when it comes to doing Texas things Last thing on UFC 271 is just to give some love to some of these unheralded standouts, as I've called them here. Uh, They are Jeremiah Wells, who nobody talked about going into the fight. We talked all about Blood Diamond's debut. Jeremiah Wells nearly trips himself right at the start of the fight or stumbles a little bit right at the start of the fight, but goes out and has a dominant performance. He's now 2-0 in the UFC, two finishes, a guy that we need to be paying more attention to, trains with a good crew in Philly, Looked great here, and yes, Blood Diamond is relatively new to this sport. First time in the UFC, so don't put a ton into it. But he knocked out Warley Alves before this. Keep keep an eye on Jeremiah Wells in the welterweight division. Bantamweight Douglas Silva goes out and, and rallies after a brutal first round to get a violent-looking technical submission of Sergei Morozov, who went to sleep with his eyes open on my television. And that image got burned in my head for several fights. Um, He has now won consecutive fights. He is a guy that we don't talk about because he's 36 years old and kind of quiet and has lost to the best competition he's faced. But he's also beaten some good fighters. And Morozov is a very good fighter. And Marlon Vera is a ranked fighter now. And he beat him a few years ago. And the guys he's lost to aren't just you know decent fighters it's rob font it's piotr yan it's larone murphy so De silva is a dude that we need to we need to shout out more we need to pay attention to more and that fight in particular was one we had it last week with julian arosa and steven peterson this week this this weekend this was the fight where even though they're not big names you follow this sport and you know who these gentlemen are you knew that was going to be a great fight. And this isn't just me wanting to pat myself on the back for back-to-back weeks, being able to identify in the run-up that this is going to be a great undercard fight that nobody's talking about. But it's also to point out that if, again, and I know I said it last week, if I can identify this and if I can sit there and pull up each of their records and remember who they fought or go and watch and see what happened in their last fights, and figure out how they mesh stylistically and what we could get, then most people should. And we need to do a better job of not just blanketly throwing out the undercard fights because they're unheralded guys, because at some point, some of these unheralded people continue to move forward, climb the divisional ranks and fight guys that we all acknowledge are, you know, contenders are in the mix or, or meaningful people in those divisions. And, we don't need to be looking at a Douglas Silva in a couple of fights and go, where do, who is this guy, where did he come from? Because he's looked great so far this year. He's looked great in his last few fights and we need to be talking about him and some of these other guys more. I have to give a shout out to Jacob Malcoon, who had a great turnaround, lost the first round, came out and wrestled the hell out of AJ Dobson afterwards. Ronnie Lawrence got a good win over Mana Martinez who showed a ton of heart by sticking around and hanging out and nearly getting a finish in the third round of that fight. Ronnie Lawrence now 2-0. Mena Martinez 1-1, but a guy that's going to continue to be entertaining to watch in the Bantamweight division. That is something that also applies to Kyler Phillips, who had a tremendous performance on Saturday, um, submitting Marcelo Arroyo with a triangle armbar. Kyler Phillips is a guy that I'm always going to be probably extra hard on because I want him to be the best version of himself. I think he is a phenomenal talent. I think he has all the skill in the world to be a contender and a real factor in this division, and I just want him to stick to the basics. I just want him to use his jab and straight punches and low kicks and his grappling and just throw out. I I want him to go back and watch early Max Holloway and Max Holloway now and, and make the same changes because if you remember Max... Max used to do a lot of flying stuff, a lot of spinning stuff, and Max said, you know what? What I'm best at is using my range, using my boxing, use some wrestling when I need to, be advantageous and and opportunistic on the ground when I can with some submissions, and this is how I'm going to be the best version of myself. And if Kyler Phillips can get there, if Kyler Phillips can do that, I think he can be a top 10 fighter, maybe even a top 5 fighter in the Bantamweight division because we saw last year that he ran out and beat Song Yedong. got out to a good start and then faded. And he fades because it's a lot of big movements. He fades because it's a lot of big actions. So if he strips away some of those big actions, the gas tank lasts a little longer and I think the success can be more consistent. But he looked fantastic on Saturday. So overall, shout out to the Matrix. Last thing before we get out of here, as we did last week, we want to jump ahead to next week. And it's already been a bloodbath on, on Twitter. People are starting to do their prep. People are starting to look ahead. And next weekend's card is already getting the this is a terrible fight card. What the hell is this card that the UFC has put together? And it's like people forget that a tremendous fight fell out of the main event. This was supposed to be Rafael Dos Anjos returning to face Rafael Fazib, which would have been a fantastic fight. It is now being kicked down the road to UFC 272, where it will be a five-round co-main event. Elevated into its place is a light heavyweight contest between Johnny Walker and Jamal Hill as the main event. I'm not a huge fan of the fight because I don't understand why Johnny Walker continues to get opportunities, but I am always going to be here to see Jamal Hill fight. He's a guy that I've been slow to adopt and slow to accept as a legitimate guy to pay attention to in this division, but that 48-second knockout of Jimmy Crute last time, Made me a believer. I really want to see what he can do against an awkward long guy in Johnny Walker who has shown flashes and and has the power to put you out if you're not careful. As far as the rest of the card, look, I can't make an argument that there are a ton of terrific fighters on this card. But there's a ton of people that are interesting to me that are a couple of years away, a few fights away, but I want to see more of. I want to see more of Kyle Dacus. I want to see Nicholas Moda debut. I really want to see Joaquin Buckley and Abdul Razak Al-Hassan get in there and start throwing kegs of dynamite at each other because one of them is getting knocked out and it's going to be awesome and we're all going to love it and it might be knockout of the year or the clubhouse leader for knockout of the year because individually they're both capable of it and now we're putting them in there together and it's going to be explosive and crazy and wild and you have to love it. On the prelims, David Onama is a guy that I want people to keep an eye on and he's going to be, I'm telling you now, when I sit down tomorrow morning and write my fighter to watch, it's going to be David Onama. He debuted last year on short notice up a division against Mason Jones and gave the former Cage Warriors champion as much of a fight as he could give Mason Jones on like four days notice, two weeks after fighting and being up a division. Now he's back at featherweight. He gets a very good test. This is one of those fights where it's a real chance to make an impression. He gets Gabriel Mowgli-Benitez back at featherweight, as I said. This is one that I want people to pay attention to. I also think that Jessica Rose-Clark, the fight with Stephanie Egger, is always entertaining. I love Jess. I think she's looked very good in her last two fights. She was a little cautious and a little patient last time, coming back off the knee injury. Did a lot of wrestling. But she's showing kind of the, the improvements and evolutions of her game. I think she's figured some stuff out in terms of division, in terms of where she's training. She's somebody that to me can be a kind of later in her career, post-hype sleeper, as we as we would call it in fantasy sports. Chaz Skelly, making the, making the walk for the last time in his career. Shout out to the scrapper. I think the fight between Gloria DePala and Deanna Belbitza is going to be just wild bonkers fest. For as long as it lasts, they're both going to be throwing hands. Gloria De Paula, De if you remember, is the person that got kicked in the face by Shannon Vlismas last time out. Diana Balbita has always been aggressive and shown good abilities on the feet. I think that's going to be wild. I'm looking forward to seeing Chad and Heliger debut a Canadian from Calgary, trains with Champions Creed with Akeem Dawadu. Won a couple belts out here near me in Rise F- FC. And then Jonathan Pierce is is still on the card. I know if you look at the the Wikipedia page, as I am now, it's in announced bouts. He will have a fight. He is going to get an opponent. The UFC is sourcing an opponent for him. He's a guy that's looked great in his two fights at featherweight. Pair second round finishes, one over Kai Kamaka by TKO, one over Omar Morales by submission. Another guy from that fight-ready camp that has been doing good things as of late. So I know it's not big names, I know it's not appointment viewing, but I promise you, as I do every week, there are people to watch and pay attention to on this card that you will need to remember somewhere down the line. You don't have to watch them all, you don't have to love this card or be, you know, infatuated with this card, but it's not this absolute mess that people are making it out to be. At least not to me, but I am... The eternal optimist, the forever excited person to watch fights, as you can probably tell by the fact that I've done a podcast and a rewatch on Sunday, in addition to doing family time, in addition to jumping back into things fresh for this card tomorrow. So for now, I'm going to get out of here. I want to say thank you to everybody that has subscribed both here to the Keyboard Kimura newsletter on Substack as well to the My Week in Words newsletter that I started posting this week over on review. Um, As always, I will tweet all of this stuff out. It is always available to you. If you can come through with a paid subscription, it helps me be able to continue to do this stuff and improve this stuff and put time and energy into making this the best it can be. If you can't, I understand. Money is tough. I appreciate you just free subscribing and checking out all the free stuff and and following along. It means the world to me that you guys, you, you fight fans, take the time to read my stuff, listen to my stuff, follow what I'm doing, offer comments on Twitter, jump into the mentions, all of that stuff. So thank you. I hope everybody has a terrific week. I hope everybody enjoyed the weekend. And I really look forward to, you, to talking to you on Sunday on the next edition of The Next Day Takeaways.